Well, good morning. Good to see y'all. Of course, the last time I preached to our church was on Celebration Sunday under the big tent, which was awesome. Uh, yeah. To date, we've, uh, we've had over uh, $2,300,000 uh, committed to until everyone knows to build our new facility, our new home for ministry, which is uh, incredibly exciting. In fact, our elders are working uh, right now, currently kind of tweaking the building plans, and it's our uh, plan and hope to, uh, uh, Lord willing, break ground uh, early next year uh, on that, and so you'll get to see that going up. Uh, if you have yet to make a commitment to until everyone knows, there are two uh, tangible ways that you can get involved. One is to seek his heart and the other is to plant your flag. The way you seek his heart is you take some time. Uh, we have a prayer guide in the back. Take 28 days to pray and just ask God, what would he have you do? And then do what he says. Uh, you can listen to the sermons online. You can join us with that. The second is to plant your flag. Also in the back are a number of flags that say until blank knows. And we use those on Celebration Sunday to write in a name or a group of people that we're going to pray for. And our hope is that they would come to know Christ through our work and the work of the other churches in, in Hutto. And so you can take that flag, write their name on it, and then go plant it on our new property. You'll see a few hundred flags out there already, but I encourage you to do that as well. You can get those in the back. And as we start this morning, uh, why don't we open in prayer and pray for our evangelism team that goes out uh, next hour to knock on doors and meet and love on our neighbors. So let's pray for them and pray for our time in the Word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank You that uh, we're not in this alone. Father, we thank You that even now You are seeking worshipers and Spirit, we thank You that anything good that happens today, any heart that is open, anyone who responds to the gospel, it is because of your work in their heart and in their life, drawing them to the point where they would place their faith in you. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would convict them of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And even as they think about the holiday season and Christmas and get ready to celebrate it, that they would be able to, because of what your Spirit does and because of the faithful witness of this team as they go to their door, that they'd be able to connect the dots between what they're celebrating and who it's all about. Lord, we pray that you would bring many to yourself this day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, and so if you want to join that team, they'll be meeting after this service on the porch out front, and you can go and learn how to share the gospel with people and learn how to pray with people. So this is the second Sunday of Advent, as Trey has already said. Advent is a four-week celebration leading up to Christmas that is kind of intended to stir in us an anticipation for the coming of Christ. That's what the word Advent means. It's from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so during this season of Advent, historically, we are supposed to kind of put ourselves in the place of all of those who had been waiting for, hoping for, and anticipating the first coming of the Messiah, even as we long for His second coming. 
You see, waiting is what the faithful in Israel had done for ages. Generation after generation after generation, they have longed for, hoped for, and waited for the fulfillment of God's promise in their Messiah. And I don't know about you, I hate waiting. Like, I hate waiting for anything. Like, if there's a line, I just, I don't want to join that line. Like, go to the DMV and you get that number and it has a letter in front of it and you're like, oh my goodness, this is like, I'm like 20 people behind and then they keep switching the the letter in the front so you're really 40 people behind. You know, hey, buckle up, you're going to be there a while. I just want to leave. Like, I have two cars that aren't legal right now because of that. Right? I just don't want to wait in that line. Or you get into a drive-thru at a restaurant. I hate the drive-thrus that lock you in. You know, like at Chick-fil-A, there's like 10 lines and you're in the middle one and there's no way out. And it may take forever, but you have no other choice. You're going to eat there. You think it's going to be lunch, it may be dinner. Who knows? You're locked in. So I hate to wait. And I wonder for you, what's the longest you've ever waited for anything? Like what's the longest that you have waited, longest that you have spent like hoping for, longing for something to arrive? Like maybe it was, I don't know, your your wedding day. You know, maybe you, you longed for it as a child. You got engaged. Your engagement was six months, four months, 12 months. And you could not wait for that day. And when it arrived, you were like, yes, finally, it's here. I'm married. Or maybe it was when you found out that you were going to have a baby. And you had about eight months left to wait. You're counting down the days. And you had your little calendar and your little spinny thing and you knew the date and you just couldn't wait. And then finally, you got to see his face or her face for the very first time. Or maybe it was graduation from college or from high school. All those years of education, all of that waiting for the great payoff. I want you to think about this. What if, what if you spent your entire life longing for, hoping for, and waiting for the very same thing that your parents did and their parents and their parents' parents for generations past. Like what if the thing that you were waiting for you knew was so significant that when it came, it would change the entire world? And now what if after countless generations of waiting, He arrived in your lifetime. What what would be the adequate response to that? Like, Like, what would be the right response to that? Like, how would you respond to something so big, so significant, something that you had waited for, your parents and grandparents had waited for? Well, if you want to see what the right answer is, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, we're going to read a lot of Scripture this morning. We will see that the response to the arrival of the Son of God on planet earth, the response to the birth of Christ, is simply to sing. Like when Jesus arrives in all of the categories that we're going to read about, the response, the right response, is praise and worship. Like here in these chapters, we'll read the very first Christmas carols. 
what one scholar, Graham Scroggy, calls the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. Like we'll have a we'll we'll read Elizabeth's song. The mother of John the Baptist, a song of unrestrained joy and humility from an older woman who thought she was barren and God did a miracle. And even in the midst of that miracle, she is caught up instead in the thrill of Mary's even more amazing pregnancy. Next, we'll look at Mary's song, the Magnificat. A Scripture-packed offering of praise by a teenage unwed mother whose fear has been replaced by an awe for a God who sees her and has chosen her. And then there's Zachariah's song, the father of John the Baptist, the worship of an elderly priest who after nine months of angelically imposed silence finally breaks that silence to praise God after he has spent nine months pondering what it means for the Messiah to arrive on our planet. And then there's the well-known angel song heard only by the shepherds, but known by many people all over the earth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace and goodwill to those who fear Him. And then finally, we're going to look at Simeon's song. Sung by a faithful saint who had spent his entire life waiting for the Messiah and was blessed to receive the reward of his waiting. It's a bittersweet song that anticipates all that Jesus would have to face in order to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. First, let's look at Elizabeth's song. In Luke 1, verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? That the mother of my Lord shall come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so what's Elizabeth's response to the arrival of Jesus, to the birth of the Son of God, to the incarnation. Well, she responds by turning away from herself. She turns away from her own miracle pregnancy. Like she is an old woman who should not be having a child, and yet God has opened her womb. She turns away from her own miracle to the greater miracle of the incarnation. Like note her humility. She says, why is it granted to me? I can't believe you would show up on my doorstep. Like, what did I do to deserve this? That the mother of my Lord would come here. 
And in that humility, she was enabled to offer a hymn of encouragement for what I believe was a very scared mother-to-be. She says blessed in verse 45. And the word there means uh, one whom God makes fully satisfied. And she says blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This kind of woman, Mary, that's you. Like you are blessed and God is going to bless you because you believed His Word with full satisfaction in Him. Like I just wonder, imagine how much Mary needed to hear that from Elizabeth. In fact, she responds, in verse 46, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy." as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. Guys, you read that and it's hard to miss the tone of utter amazement in her song. Like, He, this great God of Israel, the Mighty One, the Deliverer, has done great things for me? He has recognized me. He has seen me in my humble state. Tim Keller writes of this song, Mary is looking down the corridors of time in this song, remembering the ancient promises to Abraham and all the times God delivered His people in the past and all His mighty deeds. And in the midst of it, she realizes He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. The Mighty One has done great things for me. God had spent centuries preparing for this day and now He is going to save the world through the simple, poor, teenage, still unwed girl. For me? There is a note of joy and astonishment that God is blessing and honoring her. I would go so far as to say that this note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence, the true essence of the Gospel. So Christian, are you amazed that you're saved? Like, are you amazed that you're a Christian? Like, do you ever have the thought, can you believe He saved me? Like me! I know me! I wouldn't save me! Like, are you amazed that God chose you? Like, we should wake up every morning and the first thought in our heart and the first words out of our mouth should be, God, thank you. Like, I cannot believe you rescued me. 
Like what was Mary's response to the incarnation? Well, she sees herself in the middle of God's story of redemption, placed there sovereignly by God Himself, and she is stunned. Like she is in awe of her good fortune. She is amazed by God's grace. Are you amazed by God's grace? For years when I was a youth pastor, I'd always tell the students that if they weren't amazed by grace, like when we sing amazing grace, if that doesn't resonate with them, if they were not amazed by God's grace, it's usually because they felt like it was unnecessary. Like grace, that's a free gift. I don't need a gift. I can do this myself. They hadn't lived long enough to realize what mess-ups they were. How they would wreck everything. How all their good intentions, their good thoughts, their lofty views of themselves would come to naught. Like grace is amazing because it's so absolutely necessary. And if you aren't amazed that you're a Christian, you're probably not a Christian. Like if you are not amazed by the grace of God, it's probably because you have not experienced it yet and received Christ as your Savior and Lord. You see Christianity, the church, all of this as some man-made thing, a list of rules that you're doing pretty well at. And you don't recognize how short you fall of God's holy standard. Guys, be amazed like Mary. Next, verse 67, Zechariah's song. And his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, up to this point in the story, an angel has come to Zechariah and told him, hey, uh, your wife, who's really old, is going to have a baby. And he says, uh, how? Like, how does that even work? And this angel says, I have been standing before the throne of God and you ask me how that works? Okay, you're going to be mute for the next nine months. Like that's a vengeful angel right there, right? Like I love that. Oh, you're asking me a question? You can't talk anymore. So I want to be an angel. What a sweet job. And so for nine months, he's silent. Nine months of thinking through this promise of God. Nine months of watching his wife grow as this baby is formed inside of her, nine months to drink in the amazement of God's promise. And then he's filled with the Spirit and says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. And He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. It's interesting that during the birth of His own son, John, all Zechariah could talk about was Jesus. He says, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. As He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. To show the mercy to our promised fathers and to remember His holy covenant. The oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Zechariah prays and sings and praises and says he has visited and redeemed his people drawing from the language of the Exodus 
where when God visited His people because He saw them straining under their taskmasters, He came as their Redeemer and their Defender. And He's doing it again. Zechariah's name, by the way, means God remembers. And that is the content of everything that he sings. God has remembered His holy covenant and we have a front row seat to the fulfillment of that. It's interesting also that his wife's name, Elizabeth, means the oath of Yahweh. Like he praised God for remembering the oath that he swore to his father Abraham. And then finally, John's name captures the theme of his whole father's song. Like John's name literally means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh remembers. What does he remember? He remembers his oath. And what's the response? Yahweh is gracious. What's your response to the incarnation? Like what was his? His response, he responded by remembering that he is remembered. Do you remember that? Like, do you believe that God will keep all the promises that He's made to you? I'm confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in me will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Like, God has not forgotten His promise. Jesus is coming. Next, the angel song. And with this one, chapter 2, verse 8, we're in very familiar territory. It says, "...and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field." keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this is born this day in the city of David a Savior." who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Hark, the herald angels sing. Like, what is their response to the incarnation? Understand this, guys. These are the very ones who knew the eternal Son of God the best. Like, they were not meeting Him for the first time. Like, they had come literally from the throne of God. They had been in the immediate presence of the glory of God, and yet, here they are, in all. Glory to God in the highest. Why are they in such awe? Well, they are in awe of the incarnation. That God has become flesh. Wayne Grudem writes this about the incarnation. He says, the incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. That says a lot. It's far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing, amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, 
eternal Son of God could become man and join Himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. So what's the angel's response? They are in awe of the Incarnation. And they are in awe at the price God is willing to pay for your redemption. They stand amazed. I mean, I just think about it. How much more should we sing? Right? I mean, these angels are singing glory to God in the highest because of the incarnation that Christ came for our redemption. How much more should our hearts be filled with song? And you might think, well, I'm just not a big singer. That's just not me. I'm not wired that way. Get over yourself. Right? I mean, the eternal Son of God put on flesh so that He could be whipped for me. So that He could be pierced for you. So that a spear could go into His side. So that He could die for our sins. How much more should we sing? Finally, there's Simeon's song in verse 29. Give you a little backstory. Simeon is this old saint who has been waiting his entire life for the promise of the Messiah. Like that's his whole identity. Like each of us, people know us, certain things about us. You're that guy with that certain car or that certain job or you you played football at that school or whatever. Like Simeon's whole identity is caught up in the consolation of Israel. The Messiah coming. In fact, he had been promised by God that he would see the Messiah before he died. And then they bring Jesus into the temple and he takes him in his hands and he lifts him up. You get the image of like Rafiki and the Lion King, right? They're just holding him up with this joy. And he says this, he sings this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to Your Word. Lord, now I can die. I can die now. For my eyes have seen Your salvation that You have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to Your people Israel. And His father and His mother marveled at what was said about Him. And Simon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So what was Simeon's response to the incarnation? Hear this, guys. In the midst of his joy, there is a deep sense of grief. He has, he has been there for the fulfillment of God's promise to him. He has received the promised one. And yet, for all the promises of God to be fulfilled, 
a high price had to be paid by this little baby. Like as he holds this baby in his arms, he glimpses the shadow of the cross. Every year I read these words from Pastor John MacArthur as I prepare myself for Christmas. He writes, here is a side to the Christmas story that isn't often told. Those soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day walk up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. And as Simeon holds him in his hands, God reveals that to him. He knows in the midst of his joy, there will be deep sorrow. And yet he calls Jesus a light of revelation. You see, we are in such deep darkness and brokenness because of our sin that the only way we could ever find God is if he were the one to turn the light on. God had to reveal Himself to us. In fact, understand, anything you know about God that's true, you know a lot of stupid stuff. We all do. But anything you know about God that is true, it's because God has chosen in His grace to reveal that to you. And understand, you see it in this passage over and over again. This is why we read all of these songs together because even though they're praising God for different things, they're all responding in worship. They're all responding in song to the appearance of the Son of God because revelation calls for a response. Always. God doesn't let us just have information about Him that we can turn our backs on. We will be held accountable for what we know about God. Revelation requires a response. So how will you respond to the birth of the Son of God? Will you respond like the stories we've read? Will you respond in worship? Will you sing? Like how can we do less than those who knew so much less than us and yet lifted up their voices in song? Like we're this side of the cross. We're this side of the resurrection. We know the price that Christ paid for us. That on the cross, He looked into the past and into the future and He took the sins of the world upon Himself and died as our substitute and was raised from the dead and we have received Him as Savior and Lord. How much more should we sing this side of the cross than Zechariah or Elizabeth or Mary, or Simeon, or even the angels for whom Christ did not die. Like, will you allow your own pride or your fear of being vulnerable rob you of the very thing that you were created for? Pastor John Piper writes, worship is what we were created for. 
This is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display the worth of His glory. And He created us so that we would see this glory and reflect it by knowing and loving it with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. There's nothing worth more. And so church, understand that you are a worshiper and your heart will be captured by something or someone. You will praise something. Like it's just natural. We all do it. We do it because our praise of something completes our joy of that thing. Like you have a great meal, you want to tell somebody about it. You want to take somebody to that restaurant, you see an amazing movie, you can't wait to brag about it, talk about it, blog about it, invite somebody to see it with you. Because see, our praise completes our joy of that object. I mean, just ask me about my grandkids, right? Ask me about this little guy. He is amazing. This is my grandson Bennett. He's one. He is clearly the cutest human being on the planet. I will fight you for that. Like he enters a room and he just assumes everybody is so excited that he's there. And he just kind of waddles in and has this smile and just, he's captured my heart. Like I talk about my grandkids and I want everybody to see them and know them and think they're as amazing as, as my, I think they are. Like they're more amazing than your kids, your grandkids. Like you do the same thing with your kids and with your grandchildren. That's just the way it works. In a sense, that's worship. Like we praise Jesus because it completes our joy. We invite others in because we want them to share in our Master's joy. It fuels our passion for Christ. Revelation calls for a response. As Matt Redman says, all worship is a response to a revelation. It's only as we breathe in more of the wonders of God that we can breathe out a fuller response to Him. As we begin to see the all-deserving worth of God, it produces an all-consuming response in us. Every thought, word, and deed submitted in reply to His Lordship, it is worship with a price, a living sacrifice. So Revelation calls for a response what will your response be this Advent to the, to the birth of the Son of God? Will it be like Elizabeth? Humbled that He would come to you? Will it be like Mary? Just amazed that God chose you? Will it be like Zechariah? Remembering that you have been remembered by God Himself? Will it be like the angels in awe of the price of your redemption? Will it be like Simeon, ready, even anxious for His arrival? You know, it strikes me that there's a difference between simply longing for something and waiting for something. See, I can, I can long for something but not know what it is. In a sense, all of creation right now is longing for something. All of creation groans under the weight of sin and brokenness. Everyone longs for something that's missing. 
Like they know there has to be more than this. But Christ followers, we know His name. And we are waiting patiently for His advent. Let's pray. As you quiet your hearts, even now, as we come to a table of communion, if you're a Christian, take a moment and just experience the amazement that you're saved. Every sin you have ever sinned. The ones you're struggling with even now. The ones you will struggle with in the future until Christ returns. All of them. Flooded by the blood of Jesus and washed away. So that we have a heavenly Father who looks at us clothed in the righteousness of His own Son. And He calls us son and daughter. Take a moment and just be amazed and thank Him for that. Church, communion is a reminder of everything that we have to sing about. More than Elizabeth. More than Mary. More than Zechariah. More than Simeon. And even more than the angels. Like we have a reason to sing. And so as we stand together now and as the band plays, I want you to come and get your elements for communion. Take them back to your seat and then we'll take them after everybody has a chance to get them uh, together as a church. Let's stand together. On the night that He was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it. He said, this is My body. Because He had put on a body. The eternal Son of God had put on flesh and lived among us. He was rejected by His own, but through all that received Him, even to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of flesh and blood or the will of a Father, but born of the Spirit of God. Do this in remembrance of Him. And after the supper, He took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in My blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus was born to die. Do this in remembrance of Him. Let's sing together. Well, if you're here this morning and this is new information to you or you would like to know, have complete confidence that if your life were to end here, that you would be invited into the presence of God with joy. We would love to talk to you about that. Our elders and uh, their wives are going to be down front. We'd like to love to tell you how you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and that you're right with God because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And uh, we're going to be down here if anybody needs any kind of ministry, any kind of prayer, we're going to be down here for you also. I thought I would close this morning's service with one last Christmas carol uh, written sometime in the early years of 
the church, probably 40 to 50 A.D., and recorded by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, he writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing. And He took upon Himself the form of a servant and being made in human likeness, He humbled Himself to the point of death. Even death on the cross so that at the name of Jesus, God has highly exalted Him so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's a Christmas carol. Now we're promised in the Old Testament that every knee will bow to Yahweh. But that's not what this passage says. Like It says every knee should bow because it's an invitation to us. There's coming a day where every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth, everyone who has ever lived, angel, demon, human, will bow their knee to the Lordship of Christ and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Some in hell facing eternal judgment. Some in heaven. Some right here. But Paul's saying you don't have to wait till that day. There's an invitation here. Every knee should bow. Let's do that now. Let's not wait until it's forced upon us because of our rebellion against God. Let today be the day of your salvation. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God bless you, church.